Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's up, everybody? It's Joe LaPuma. You are listening to the Complex Sneakers Podcast. As always, I am joined by my two co-hosts. First off, Matt Welty. How are you, buddy? We're live and direct. We are. You sound crisp. The AC is okay. You look, you're drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee. You seem like uh, the technical difficulties, the the apartment um, hangups. It seems like we're we're in a good vibe right now. I think I think once the weather goes back to like... Being cool this morning, your uh, whole uh, level-headedness goes to the same uh, temperature. You know? Okay. And, of course, my guy, Brendan Dunn. How you doing, buddy? I am not level-headed at all right now. I am guilty. I am full of remorse. I have sins to atone for. It was a long weekend. Yeah, but you got the Bach bag. But hold on. We're going to get to that. Don't we? are going to get to that. Let us build up to that. <laughs> Is that a sewing machine in the back? Yeah, I'm in my brother's studio right now. Oh, okay. You make you coming out with cut and sew for the fall? He's making his own shirts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's um he's deconstructed a couple shirts and put them back together and I think he's investing in a pattern or two, so he just wants to be a little more self-sufficient. Okay. Maybe he designs the a The Dunbro's cut and sew may hit 2021. Wait for that. He does maybe he I, designs a complex sneakers podcast merch. We could do it. All right. Save on the margins. I was wondering because I there's a for those obviously you can't see but there's a bottle of like Elmer's glue it looks like mm-hmm. uh, right next to it and I thought Brendan Dunn was making like the high school home ec uh, sweatshirts where you had to like glue <laughs> the like patches and decals onto them yeah uh, did you guys have to build the step stool in home ec no I think home ec for me in seventh or eighth grade was a lot of cooking. Maybe a little bit of sewing. Yeah, maybe I was thinking about something else. Uh, yeah, it was cooking. Cook, home ec was fun, but I had to build like a wooden step stool. Everyone had to do it. It's like every house in our school district had the step stool, and they were beautiful. Mine was the worst one. I am not a handyman at all, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't bode well with the sewing machine, the glue, or anything like that. Nor I. Nor I. That's all him. I think I had to make a. I had to make a sweatshirt from scratch, and I just wasn't paying attention while I was doing it. And I definitely sewed the neck opening closed. Wow. <laughs> when it was all done, I was like, oh, can't wait. That was the end of your how to make it in America story. Yes. Speaking about how to make it in America and building something from scratch. Let's talk about the New Deal alert, one of our co-hosts. Okay? You like that? I know you oh, like the boy. transition, but this ain't about me. Oh, I saw boy. the photo. We saw the photo. I love the photo. It looked like old, what was it, old Reebok boxes? Or are those the new ones or some, what? Some I, old and new, just some yeah. stuff that I've been sitting on, you know? It's complex staff photographer David Cabrera came by, and we got the lighting for you. You see that's in the new crib, and you see the lighting is angelic. 
I like the creative direction. I said that in the Slack. It, it was it was a good announcement. I like the creative direction, but the deal, long time coming. Can you sp- give us any details about it? Yeah, so basically I'm working with Reebok on a few pieces of content, a few videos that are coming out over the next mm, six months or so, roughly promoting some upcoming collaborations that they have. And you should be seeing one very soon. We had to shoot a lot of it at home, Zoom style, so it doesn't look exactly how we would like it to look if, if we could be on location. But I hope you enjoy the interviews and I hope you enjoy the product that they're promoting. This is a branded deal. Okay, are you allowed to wear other products? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. not exclusive. He got the not exclusive deal. Okay. People on my social media need to understand this. Yes, I will still be wearing other sneakers. I like a lot of other sneakers. I do not walk around exclusively in Reebok. I guess it's just a meme at this point, so that's what people expect. But I have a lot of sneakers. Not all of them are Reeboks. I enjoy a lot of sneakers. Not all of them are Reeboks. Okay. This is how this is how you know it's serious. Uh, hit up Brendan Dunn this morning, asking him about the payment that we both should have received on something else for full size run, and he's like. I don't know if it hit. It's hard to discern with all the money coming in. Wow. From like, and I was like, <laughs> okay. Okay. And I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess the bag's Whenever different. someone says, oh, I'd have to check, different level. Oh, I'd have to check. Stop it. Okay. Did the wire hit? We don't know because the wires are getting conflated. Okay. The wires are getting crossed. I'm, I, I need to do my part, you know. They, they sent me a bunch of shoes for the photo shoot. I, I got to give some of those away. Don't ask me. Don't DM me. I will figure it out. But I really need to give back right now because, like I said, I have some sins to atone for. I, I need to balance out my karma at the moment. Oh, yeah? What's that? Um, I, I told you guys. Oh, before we go, just just get me a Reebok DMX-10 that I've been asking for for years, please. Now I, I got to ask. All right? For you, yes, Joe. For Thank the you. random people I don't know on Appreciate social media, it. no. But, okay. um. Let's hear it. What's what's going on about you? Get, what's going on with the sin? Yeah, my my heavy heart. Um, you've known I've been I've been moving into this new place. I'm pretty much settled, but we rented a U-Haul this past weekend to go pick up some tasteful furniture. You know, a vintage Italian chair, a nice smoked lucite amber table. Go ahead. Um, yes, yeah, so, so, some other tasteful things. We rented the U-Haul van and I was driving around an undisclosed avenue in an undisclosed section of Brooklyn. And, you know, the the U-Haul van is pretty manageable. It's not as big as a truck, but you're still a little wide. Okay. And, you know, I'm focused. Hit and run? (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I don't want to step on your thing, but I see where this is going. Go ahead. You know, it's wider. The van is wider than you think, especially with the mirrors out. This is a, I can tell this is a classic misjudging of a small space, but keep going. Listen, I'm, I'm laughing, but I, I, I don't feel good about this. Um, I, I definitely blew somebody's mirror right off their car. Ooh, did you leave somebody's a note? Mirror. Did you leave a note? Did you report it to the police? Um, I was very focused and I didn't know what to do. I was, I kept driving. <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is not funny, but I kept driving because I had the van for a limited amount of time and I was very in, in mission mode and I was asking my brother who was sitting passenger, what should I do? What should we do? And will their insurance cover it, et cetera? I didn't, I didn't leave a note. I left their mirror in the street, Oh, bro. but I did. Let me tell you this. We did circle back around and I went out of my way to go back down that Avenue and look for the truck whose mirror I blasted off. And I, and I've, as I've said, I've been racked with guilt since. So I, I need to, I need to figure out how I can give okay. back to the universe in order to, um, 
write this misdeed because I'm not proud of myself. Did you did you just confess? Yes. Did you just confess to a yes. crime? I confess to the crime because listen, if the person whose mirror I destroyed is out there, okay, that's fair. Yes, and, you know, and you can share some details corroborating your your involvement in the incident. I will be happy to give you the money or or, or make it right in whatever way I can. That's you know. That's that's the best I can do right now. I, in the moment, I should have stopped. Man, listen. Do you think Reebok will take away my deal because of this? I'm just kind of trying to figure out how sincere you are. I'm totally sincere. Did you put enough time? Did you put as much time searching for the van, the van that you hit as you did into the Reebok announcement photo <laughs> post? Okay. Did you circle the block a few times? Joe, there's a, there's a lot of things I, I would trust Brendan on. I would go to him for advice. You know, Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, so certain things. How to how to get into the back end of like a of, yes. a of a retailer's website. Yep. But if there's like some sort of situation where you're like, hey, we're moving and we need someone to drive like a commercial size. <laughs> vehicle no go and, and no offense it's like brendan's not really the guy that i'm going 100 to it's like it's like my grill broke it's like i'm not gonna call brendan to be like hey how do i fix this in the backyard 100 right. you are i am not offended in the least totally fair assessment totally accurate you are you are you are right in that i'm not the i'm not the guy to call so not a good driver I wrecked the car once when i was a teenager but i'm not the Everyone. worst driver but you know commercial vehicles i don't have a com- you know the, the van yeah. is wide. You don't got a CDL, but I'm happy to lift some couches and things like that if you need if you need some muscle. All right, shifting gears. Well done. We hope. I'm that, sorry. Yeah, I'm it, sorry. It, you're sorry, and we hope that the person gets in touch because we know you're a guy. Of, uh, One last. Do you think that their insurance will cover it? I was going to Google it, but I didn't want to incriminate myself further with my cookies and all that. I'm not sure. I don't know how that works, honestly. Anyway, shifting gears. We hope that they get in touch with you and you do the right thing. Let's talk, you know, we've been on New Balance for a few weeks on this podcast, but I feel like the Slack was as energetic as it's ever been on because, fire. yeah, let's give the audience a little take. We're, we're working on a post, the best 992s of the year or in general or what, of the year? Of 2020, Of yeah. 2020. Yeah. And man, was that Slack, the Complex Sneaker Soul Collector Slack, a lot of different opinions and I say that because there was a lot of back and forth and done. I think we have to say the Packer shoes, nine, nine, two, it landed in your apartment. Yes. And yours. Yes. It's right behind you. Thank, thanks so much to Packers. Not mine. Great in person, right? Better in person, man. Better in person. It's a lovely shoe. So the 992s, Welty, you had a lot of strong opinions. There was some jarring back and forth for the audience. We don't usually tease content. We're very like surprised. The element of surprise is a gift, but we haven't been able to run this list because we're all over the map as to the rankings of the best 992s of 2020. And as this goes up, I would love to see what the audience thinks. So when this podcast goes up, drop drop a line of your favorite 992s in, uh, in our comments. But... Well, do you talk about or done hop in and, and talk about you saw the, the level of contention rising and rising. No, 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 no. I want to let I want to let Welty take it away because I feel passionately about this, but nobody feels more passionately about this than Welty. As he should. I think he's the most engaged with New Balance out of all of us. He loves the mm-hmm. brand the most. I'm a huge New Balance fan, but, but Welty even more so. Welty, do you feel like 
no one was listening to you? Or where did we go wrong in that discourse? One of the things I I guess I hate the most because we've been like we've been ranking sneakers forever, right? Mm-hmm. Like Joe, this feels like I've been in yes. very contentious arguments before, and some you've been in them. Is that a pun based on the name of our social media guy? Oh, yeah, um, but. You know, been in a lot of discussions over the years at varying levels of the company. And yes, sometimes it's like it's always good to get into a room and, and discuss things. But sometimes I feel like when you get in into these rooms and, and talk about stuff, it's like not as much of a level headed conversation as as it needs to be. And, you know, sometimes it's more about one person cracking on the other without like, or just dismissing what someone else said, said about a shoe without anyone like really like going into it in, in depth. Lacking nuance. Yeah. You're, Don't you think that's gotten better though? Wealthy throughout the years or no? A little bit. I mean, if you want to talk about the days of when it was like, it was my first year working at the company and it's here like, it comes, here comes a dry snitching, but go ahead. Yeah. Lauren Schlossman being like, if you like those shoes, you're an idiot. And you're like, and you're like, all right, cool. Like, why are we even arguing anything? You know what I mean? But the 992 argument was, it was tough because it basically came down to the Joe Fresh Goods 992. Um, not to spoil anything, but that was like what it was centered around. And obviously Joe's collaboration was big for the brand. Um, it brought a lot of new people in the New Balance. We had that whole discussion on the podcast. Can't deny any of that. With that said, even Joe talked about it. He's like, you know, the pro- the project was a little rushed. Um, not the biggest New Balance guy himself. And he's like learning about it through the process. So when we're rating the best New Balance product, I think it did a lot for the company. But I just don't think that you can say that it's the best designed New Balance sneaker. To me, it's like it it did it did its purpose. It did what it needed to do for the brand. But if we look back, I think in like, 10 years and put all these shoes in a line mm-hmm. and we rate them design wise, which do we think was the best put together shoe? I just don't think that that sneaker, no disrespect to Joe or anything. I just want to throw that out there. It's enough, has nothing to do with Joe Fresh. Of course. It just doesn't hold up to the level of kind of intent with the other sneaker. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in the slack felt a totally different way. <laughs> wealthy and I, wealthy and I were, kind of on the same side with this but we are we are at war with our co-workers in terms of this list but you know what we're going to sort it all out and we're going to make we're going to make some final calls and we're going to put that list out there we're going to tell the people exactly which new balance 992s are the best and why it's just a weird argument when you have people that feel very passionate about new balance throughout all the years and have you know, been rock- you mean yourself? Yeah, yeah, talking- or just or, <laughs> yeah. just or or just or just people I know who are just like the real diehard yes. New Balance collectors who have worked with the brand, have hundreds of pairs of the shoes, can tell you all the little minute differences between all of them, and when they kind of feel some sort of way about the product that's been putting out, and all of that gets erased just because you know uh, someone behind a very popular streetwear brand who's doing big things in the space made a hype shoe that like everything that made New Balance a good brand over all the amount of time just gets erased just because of the hype around one sneaker. I feel like it does a little bit of disservice because if we're talking about Air Jordans and whatnot, 
I feel like the people who love Air Jordans wouldn't let that happen if we're ranking what's the best Air Jordan 1 or Air Jordan mm. 4 of all time. I think it's a, it, people would take the discussion a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. This is this is definitely Welty's for me. It became personal Michael Jordan moment. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely what that is. I could just see him. But yeah, there was a lot of good discussion. And to be honest, I was like letting it I, I was just watching from the sidelines a little. The discussion it, wouldn't stop it, but it would pop up over the weekend. Someone would drop another pair of 992s in the slack and it's it's raged for days now and uh, no end in sight. Yeah, I'm excited to see how that post comes out and where the group uh, settles. But um, yeah, the Packers shoes, 992. Man, a lot of times you see photos on the internet and they look really good and then they come and they're like, oh, they look better in the photos. These really mm-hmm. delivered. Not going to lie. I'm so happy Crispy. to have these. And, yeah. yeah, nice looking shoe. Well, enough about us, though. This week, another great guest. Let's get to it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Our guest on today's podcast has become one of the UK's most significant fashion designers over the past five years. His design prowess stems from a mix of his upbringing in British council estates and his graphic design and illustration chops learned at De Montfort University. As his design portfolio continued to grow, he left an impression on Virgil Abloh, who would end up hiring him to work on a number of projects under the iconic Donda Collective that included everything from Bin Trill, Off-White, Kanye West, Good Music, and more. After soaking up game from the collective of forward-thinking designers he was working amongst, he founded his own label, A Cold Wall, in 2015. The label developed a cult-like following, and a steady building of a loyal fan base would propel the brand to land on the racks at standout retailers like Barney's New York and Selfridges in London. Just three years later, in 2018, he would win the Fashion Award for British Emerging Menswear Designer. Since then, his prolificness in the space has led to standout menswear shows and collaborations with Nike, Doc Martens, Oakley, and more. This week, he flipped the iconic Chuck Taylor into a ready-made hiker and retooled a classic basketball silo for Converse. It's our pleasure to welcome one of fashion's brightest young minds to the Complex Sneakers podcast, Samuel Ross. Thanks so much for joining, Samuel. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with your styles. How are you, man? 
Really, really well, actually, really well. That was a really profound um, introduction, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, and I'm, I'm doing well, of course, we've just released the Converse ERX yes. and the Taylor, which was supposed to be on our .com for 72 hours, but we cleared through 95% of the inventory within, I think within about 17 minutes or something quite wow. uh, ridiculous. That's not a surprise for you, though, at this point, right? Blowing out of a sneaker collaboration like that so quick? It's interesting. It always There's always this kind of like uh, sense of renewal when it happens. There's always an excitement between the team because we're all of us are kind of in one station operating behind the scenes, ensuring that the flow of, uh, of sales and revenue and customer experience is, of course, as seamless as, as possible. So there's mm -hmm. always like, uh, an excitement when you're kind of huddled with your team behind the scenes, making sure people can get the product they want. And that, that feeling doesn't really um, ever age. And I, I'm not sure if a lot of people have kind of talked about what happens on the back end when such a commercial release comes forth. But it, it's a really exciting time for the team and, and I as well, of course. How much do you pay attention to the comments like when you post that first teaser online? Like, are you just glued to your phone constantly just swiping? Yeah, I'm a bit of a social media addict, as we all are. So I'm pretty much glued. I'm glued to my phone, and you kind of learn that you're going to get some recoil and damage collateral as you go. But for the most part, the main thing on our side is making sure that the consumers, well, not even the consumers, I don't like that word, the individuals who support the brand can actually access the product. And we know that we were able to launch pretty much right on time. We had a really solid rollout plan, and we made sure that the content that went forth across the seven-day rollout period each mm -hmm. had different points of inflection. So for example, if you were to look through the posting dates, we're offering multiple views of the product from clothes, from on foot, from in motion, extreme close ups, uh, elevated uh, e-commerce shots, as well as more um, mood and campaign led shots. So we spend a lot of time, and we is literally four of us, making sure that that communication plan gives everyone what they need to kind of see about the product. Sam, we'll talk more about your Converse project and where you're at now, but also I want to I want to discuss your foundation in footwear. You know, it's so special for us because we don't normally get guests from the UK. So I want to talk about those regional things that you saw growing up, you know, around London and Northampton and things like that. What kind of sneakers were you first seeing when you grew up that, that, that made you feel like shoes were important or made you feel like shoes could say something about your identity? MX 95, 97, Air Force uh, mid and Air Force low. 100%. Those were, the, those were the key silhouettes through and through. And it's interesting because in the UK, you kind of get this like split in terms of material and footwear styles. If you're mm -hmm. down south, you call anywhere, London and, and beneath, you're pretty much seeing everyone rock, you know, jersey, gray, Nike tracksuits, uh, primarily Air Forces, maybe the 95. But as soon as you go to like the Midlands, which mm -hmm. would be 70 miles out, 100 miles out of London, it's a completely different threshold of, you know, street style and culture regarding sneakers and you're into technical nylon, you're into 95s, 98s, MX 2001s, the, the, you're into the Nike TN, you're into mm. Nike shop as soon as you cross that threshold. And I kind of, I mean, I was born in Brixton, moved mm -hmm. out at a young age, and I grew up in Northampton, which is like the heart of the Midlands. So I had this exposure to both, um, you know, the more relaxed jersey um, and, and baggy silhouettes that were more so associated with London and down south and the Air Forces. But I also had that mix of technical power and that being reflected in, you know, Air Max styles from up north. In the UK too, like for a lot of the people don't realize like how much connected the Air Max style is to like 
street culture and kind of like the connotations with wearing those shoes. Like I think I shared a story on here once. I went to Manchester and was wearing a Nike tracksuit near Max 95 because I was on a flight mm-hmm. and I went into a pub and like someone like hit me with an elbow because I was kind of like dressed, you know, like a scally or whatever, yeah. or, or whatever they, they call it. But I guess like, like just kind of explain kind of like wearing those shoes and kind of like, you know, the, the reputation that, that comes with it. Sure. It's codex really. Like it's almost, it's interesting because it is clearly part of like, you know, subcultural happenings and style tribes. And again, growing up in like a super working class background, which was normal to me, it wasn't even working class growing up. It was just like the normal thing to wear. That's what your older cousins wore. That's what your peers wore. That's what we would try to wear to school, even though we had school uniforms. Um, All of those elements were kind of intrinsic to our identity, but it wasn't really a fashion uh, thing. It was solely like about subculture and street culture and what we knew and what we identified to be our identity at, at that time. And it still is. And it's interesting looking back, you know, each generation in the UK thinks they're kind of special in regards to what they wear. Like we've been wearing the same style clothes for the last 25 years. Mm. As soon as you get like the early 90s, that's when the Air Maxes and the Jersey tracksuits and the technical tracksuits really start to take off. We're in 2020 now. I'm still seeing school kids wear the small just do it Nike bags to school yeah. in London. And they all want it to the end, right? Exactly. And we we wore I wore that like 15 years back, almost 20 years, not 20 years, but, but 17 years back or whatnot. So there's a real um deep rooted love for the Air Max, the Air Force, the 95, the TN and the shops. And you rightly touched on this idea of as soon as you put those clothes on, you are assumed to be almost part of a neighborhood or part of an environment. Maybe it's changed a little bit now because of course Roadman became like a massive meme uh, like in the last two to three years. So it's not as specific at it as it was, but it was always um deemed as like a a um un you know a more uncultivated approach to dress how we dress mm. and to come from where we came from. And that kind of ties back to this notion which is complete nonsense on like chav culture. We were considered chavs. That like we weren't like Burberry pulled so much product so that we couldn't get the product in working class neighborhoods, but we still got the products. So there's always been this association with wearing these clothes and almost being other, but also belonging to like an underground world is the best way to put it. If you dress like that, you were from you were part of a different society almost. And that was fine because we had our own sound wave, we had our own culture, we had our we still have our own language and slang. But it was so different to, you know, the overprescribed view of what it is to be English or British, you know, and to, to kind of veer off a little bit more. I remember buying my first pair of 95s. They're a counterfeit pair. You know, okay. I, I bought I bought them. On my Did own. you know it right away when you bought them? Yeah, yeah I couldn't afford. I couldn't <laughs> afford full price. I had 25 pounds. I mean, this what is color? I was, was it an original color or an off color? Is it was an Air Max 180 Limited, and it was okay. white, uh, white upper. It had a slate gray uh, midsole, and it had a dark red tick on it. And it wasn't really an official colorway. You it didn't smell right. No, you, you, you <laughs> could look at the front, you know, um, tooling and see that this was completely off. The ice stay was all over the place. Um, but that's what we knew, and that was my first real engagement with product. It was on it was on council estates, and that's how I started, you know, selling, uh, you know, counterfeit Nikes and Converses off council estates. So it's a really important part of my journey 
sneaker culture was my first foray into fashion. So I want to know more about this thing where you were selling fake Nike gear. What does that look like? Where do you get it? How much are you selling it for? Is it shoes, apparel? What is that arrangement like? Both. So over in the UK, we have a system called EMA, which is Emergency Maintenance Allowance for Underprivileged Homes. Okay. So I was around 15, 16, just got into what we call college, but what you'd probably just call like the years before you go into university. Mm -hmm. And I thought again, EMA, most of my friends um, ended up putting their EMA allowance elsewhere into other, uh, you know, directives and directions. And I decided to put mine into really counterfeit um, clothing and, and footwear and sneakers. And it's the same notion of you just kind of, when you, I mean, when you're from like an area, which is quite tight knit, mm-hmm. everyone knows a guy who knows a guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was just, Oh, you're into clothes. I know a guy who sells counterfeit Nikes come mm. to the house. We all went to the house. He sold the man sold everything, man, from samurai swords, <laughs> ounces of whatever. Samurai swords? I mean, it's just like a, it's like a, it's like an like everything house, right? So you're going right. to get some like, not to say these were like, you know, beautiful, you know, swords from the Edo period, but just cheap, cheap, like painted black, like just anything and everything on a council estate you could get in this house. And the council estate was called the Hemingwell in Wellingborough, for anyone who thinks I might be talking smack, this is a real place and you can go on Google Maps and it will make a lot of sense when you, you know, drop down that, that small yellow man in, into the Hemingwell. But anyway, I, 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 I digress. This guy just sold everything. So I started buying footwear from him specifically. And there was another gentleman I knew, um, just again from the area, the neighboring town, who was able to get a hold of counterfeit apparel and, uh, you know, well, not all of it was counterfeit. Some parts were just like off the back of a lorry and some parts were definitely counterfeit apparel. I just kind of knew mm-hmm. people. I mean, a lot of people were either doing that or they were into, you know, um, finding ways to work with banks and other mm-hmm. different. And so, again, when you're just in that environment, all of this is very normal. So it was never a thing like oh my gosh you're selling counterfeit goods it was just like well it wasn't like you were a criminal or you were worried about some, oh no, some... That, i was that, that, that was better that was like the softest option compared to Got what it. everyone else was doing so it was just immediately normalized and it, it, it kicked off quite quick so i'd have people come to my house and do like fittings which is wow. <laughs> what? So amazing yeah it's like I've, I've got dudes trying to fit into like a size 30 waist Ibisu who are clearly like a 34. And I'm telling them that the slim fit is, is what's in right now. <laughs> this is like a decade. Wow, that's that's amazing. Ibisu. Was it about sneakers that you couldn't get in standard colorways, the fakes, or fakes that look like the original colorways? Like Ibisu jeans that look like the real thing or kind of custom looking ones that people wanted to stand out in? We were looking for real fates. You know, okay. people kind of wanted to assimilate in, but the main thing was, it was the price point. We never really talked about, the, you know, the clothes being fake, but we all knew you can't get a pair of Air Max when it is for £25 anywhere mm-hmm. else. But it was always about the access to something which looks like the real deal. And again, I spent a lot of time growing up in this small town, working class town. So we were happy with the you know mirage and imitation of what the real deal was because it was so far flung you know this is a hundred miles out of london Mm -hmm. so you're not around that kind of velocity and pace of culture moving so you're kind of people are happy to get what they can at that point and we were satisfied at that point 
when you could finally like get the real stuff, where were you going to in the UK? Were you going to like JD Sports, like Sports Direct? Like where, where were you actually buying the sneakers when you could finally get the real the real thing? TK Maxx and, and JD Sports for sure. I mean, TK Maxx, you guys, for, for you guys, TJ Maxx was like yeah. the wow. place where anything was just slightly more abstract that didn't make it from the energy or tier zero collection mm-hmm. would end up there. So at the age of 18, we kind of quickly, specifically myself, we quickly clocked onto that. And I would just spend hours just sifting through TJ Maxx to kind of find one of ones a more particular product, which again, wouldn't typically make it to local JDs or, or Sports Direct. They were both seminal. Again, for like, if we just needed a pair of Air Force, you go into Sports Direct, you go into JD Sports. But this is where my like perk for, you could say, fashion and sneaker culture started to kind of evolve a little bit. I was always looking for something just slightly different or slightly offbeat. And TK Maxx was able to kind of facilitate that to a certain degree. Yeah, you find weirder stuff in there that wasn't on the shelves. Yeah, were there any big come-ups at TK Maxx that you can remember? Yeah, I remember there was a gray, probably like 250 GSM Nike Air tracksuit, um, which shared the same logo as the Nike Air logo that was put onto a lot of the um, mid-2010 Jordan brand stuff, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. There was, there's a, there was a Windrunner jacket that I'm still looking for now that I purchased about 17, yeah, it was about 16 years ago. And it was like a lime green colorway with this, like, it looked like a 3D printed fabrication. I've never come across it since and I cannot find it. Um, there are a couple of footwear styles, like the ZX300, or maybe it's the ZX300 or 500 from Adidas was an early pickup in there as well. Um, there was a Nike Air Force. It was quick strike. It was slate gray with tons of perforation holes all over it, which was only in a size 12 and I'm a size 10, but I still took that because, you nice. know, you got me. But, so these, these are like really, really um, vivid memories in, in my mind. And I should probably interject on before kind of getting into selling the counterfeit goods, before discovering what could be found of tier zero at, at TJ Maxx. My first um, placement at age like 12 or 11 was in a streetwear store in Northampton. So mm-hmm. I was all, I've always kind of been around um, these products to a certain degree. That was probably the first point of difference, I'd say, where I was kind of, you know, selling kids and, and families new eras on the weekend and running up to the stock room. I was a stock boy. Um, really? at so yeah, yeah, I've kind of been through all of the different motions of, of it, of things you could say. You've mentioned seeing stuff that was happening in London and, and that was kind of inaccessible. Was any of that music influenced? I mean, in my teenage years, I was really into grime. So I was seeing Dizzy Rascal wearing Air Maxes on the cover of Boy in a Corner and things like that. Were, were those the figures that were kind of showing you what was cool in terms of sneakers? Yeah, they were totally. I remember the first day, you know, the I Love You video by Dizzy mm-hmm. Rascal came onto MTV. I was, yeah, I was 11. I remember turning it on thinking, this is insane to see yeah. like someone like us on the TV making this like just like forward thinking music. It was kind of, um, but again, I think the aspiration of what we didn't have access to was more so from an American perspective. Because I think that when it came to like UK fashion, UK is so compressed, right? And although there's so many different style codes, across the different counties and cities and districts, you can still get from like, you know, Manchester, which has a completely different style codex to London within like two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of imagine you have families scattered all over the country in specific points and you all kind of share the same tastes and tendencies regarding fashion and clothing. So from a UK perspective, um, we definitely did look 
towards London a little bit more for more like directional tweaks and twists on style. Um, but overall, there was this general sense of if you are from the UK, if you are from this specific background, you probably dress one of three ways. And we all, uh, you know, ascribe to that. Regarding um, American influence, we were like profoundly excited by American fashion, music, culture, mm-hmm. style. Uh, I mean, this is like the 2000s, early 2000s. So this is like peak Americana for us. This is before Wall Street crash. You know, we're kind of looking at America like this like shiny halo object of like profound um, goodness and commercialization and consumption. And that was what seemed quite far away when you're in a small town, which is not even connected to London. So again, I think that's where this intrigue and drive for like counterfeit goods, whether it be basketball, uh, basketball related on, on Converse, All-Stars, or whether it be related to Ivisu or Averix or Lot 29, we were wanting anything we could grab from that uh, directory. And the majority of it was counterfeit and we were fine by it, by that. You have some early Converse memories too, right? You shared a story about seeing a, a navy blue pair of Chucks in the Caribbean when you were like 14 years old. Yeah, that was my first pair. It was a pair of um, navy blue Chucks. It was one star. I couldn't afford the mainline all stars. So I didn't I didn't have like the circular logo on it. But my my background is like, I'm like 1.5 generation. My mother's from the Caribbean. My father's black British Caribbean, but born here. Mm-hmm. So from as young as I can remember, we'd go over every single year for like two and a half months. So I remember, again, like walking through markets in Barbados and St. Vincent and St. Lucia, walking into these like, well, I guess what you call them now, like parallel selling stores, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that probably have a lot of overstock and inventory from the South and North Americas, which had kind of ended up in the Caribbean. And you just walk into these stores and there'd just be outlets and outlets and outlets of like, um, you know, Converse All-Stars. And it's an early memory being able to actually access a Converse abroad. Yeah. It was basically your version of TJ Maxx, but down there. (laughs) Literally that. But it was also like, it was a style thing where everyone just wanted to wear, that's just what people were wearing. I Mm -hmm. specifically remember the time where in the UK, again, because the majority of of the people I grew up around were also like Black British Caribbean, first or second generation. We'd come back from the Caribbean and look at how they were styling the tongues on their Converse Mm. All-Stars. At the time, they fold down the tongue and you'd wrap the lace around the midsole and over the top to hold down like a flap of the tongue. Right. And we would take that and then bring that back over to the UK. Um, so there's always been this like tight continuity between Caribbean influence, how we speak, patois, music, and of course, fashion and, and, and sneaker culture as well. It's so synonymous for us. Let's fast forward to 2012, 2013. You meet Virgil Abloh even before he started off white, what was that experience working with him? Like, I know that I think you met him kind of through Instagram. He followed you back. He saw that you left an impression on him. What was it like to be working amongst him from such an early time in his career as it relates to the brands that we see nowadays so popular? Yeah, I mean, it was surreal. So surreal because Virgil's like, Virgil's like a brother now at this point, but he was, you know, he was my, my mentor and my boss for a long time. And we worked really, really hard and I was really diligent. And I mean, for him, the first engagement was on Instagram. I was trying to email Virgil from a long time before that, through every yeah. single, <laughs> from every yeah. single channel possible um, with like four portfolios, four different creative aliases. This is just when I had, um, maybe like a year after I graduated and I'd gone straight into industry as a graphic and product designer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I already had a little, like just a sliver of experience, which was enough for me to have like working credentials, you could say. And I think that's what really made the difference between when Virgil did notice my work, he could see there was a level of professionalism and a level of industry experience that hadn't been shaped too much, but was still existent. So I don't think I would have got the opportunity to work with Virgil if I hadn't gone through an academic route, to be honest with you, because you need hard skills. It's not just about being, uh, you know, creative. You need actual skill set to creativity. Was it the cookware that sold him? Like, didn't you work at a cookware company? Which like, to me, I could see Virgil being like impressed by that because we see you now for sneakers and fashion, but cookware, there's a design brain that has to go behind that. Yeah, totally. It was the industrial design focus, 100%, because it's like non-flattering design. And I mean, he trained as an engineer and operated as one for a little mm-hmm. while. So it's this like semblance of understanding that like real design is not as uh, flamboyant or as textured as the space we get to work in now, which is just actually a, quite a blessing that we can make beautiful products and engage with more forward-thinking techniques. But at that point, it was more like raw industrial design you're working for a salary you're a product designer you're a graphic designer and that was that and that's what led to me wanting to kind of reach out i already had a series of small different projects like a small t-shirt brand was going um, in leicester which is where i studied and that was picking up traction with local retailers like wellgosh and pilot um i was operating as a graffiti artist at night for about a year and a half i was making short film so i was kind of just exploring all of these different creative avenues knowing that I wanted to basically leave product design and actually move into the arts and into um, just doing things that I enjoyed you know life is short. Samuel one of I think the first moment that uh, kind of noticed your name in in footwear space is a a friend of all of ours um, Gary Warnett rest in peace um, who I think when your first Air Force One dropped in in 2017 I hadn't heard of a cold wall yet but he was like no you really need to pay attention to this shoe this shoe's really good and you know hearing that from gary is like the ultimate cosign especially you know as you know in, in the uk sneaker space having gary warnett say that your air force one is good mm-hmm. he wouldn't say that if it sucked you know mm-hmm. um so that that was when i first noticed that i needed to pay attention to your brand and your footwear designs like what was it like when that first air force one came out i know it only dropped that the pop-up space initially and was like super limited like how did that come about what was the reaction like on that yeah that was a, that was a really um pivotal moment to be honest if if you could say the first breakout moment of acknowledgement was working with Virgil the second main one would have been that air force for sure and mm-hmm. this is in 2017 yeah this is 2017 and i built a really tight rapport with some of the energy team in london um, at Nike, of course, like A-Side, Zainab, who's now, which has been at Supreme for a long time, um, and also Sami Janja, who was, of course, in, he was in EU Energy, then went over to North America as well. And these were like people who were just kind of around a lot of the energy that was happening in London at that time. And over, over a, a long period of time, we just built an organic relationship. I started doing small, um, you could almost say just marketing stuff mm-hmm. for Nike in London. So I developed some packaging for Kim Jones footwear release in 2017 and his apparel release. I did some marketing stuff around the Nike Gyatsu 
uh, Mikey 3.0 release, I think it was in 16, 17 as well, just kind of being like a influencer and part of the community. Mm. And then the opportunity came around slowly to start engaging with, with Nike on more of like a customized one of one uh, frontier. And we produced the Air Forces through the bespoke model and um, they just blew up really quickly because it was this idea of the shoes are already perfect. All I need to do is allow the shoe to breathe and add uh, a new feeling and texture to the shoe, which is where this notion of actually removing the Nike tick and leaving the preparations came into play. You know, reversing some of the, the, the leather skins to have this more coarse, but still very subtle and soft texture come into play. Um, the logo size now, I'd say, is a little bit big for my taste. But at that point, you know, like four, four and a half, five years ago, it was appropriate for the time in, in luxury streetwear and that, and that crossover point. Also, we only made 30 pairs um, at first. So V1, there's a slightly different logo lockup that's been used. And the ACW typographic letters actually connect to the bracket because it's a bit of an error. So if you mm -hmm. have that shoe, that's literally Gen 1, and there are only 20 or well, 30 of those in existence. Of the Air Force the One High, and then you made more of the Air Force One Highs? Yeah, but we still only made 150 pairs of the Air Force One High, and they all went through the, the Nike Energy Bespoke program. So actually, they retailed at a moderately high price point, but no one made any money off those because mm -hmm. they, you know, you go through the bespoke program, the cost price is coming out. Well, your retail should be at 350 but we retailed at around 205 I believe. So Nike made a loss, but it was really important culturally for that shoe to be out at that quality and, and of that stature from like a British uh, brand and, and, and persona, which really encapsulated the moment. But that shoe, as you guys have rightly said, really um, set the tone for what a cold wears in footwear full stop now. That is the crux and foundation of what we do in footwear. Was it important for you to try and ramp it up from there in terms of production? You, you've spoken elsewhere about how much you want to build the brand and you're not afraid to share numbers publicly about how much you're doing in sales every year. Do you have that goal as well with collaborations like your ones with Nike or Converse where you want to push them to be able to make 10,000, 20,000, 60,000 pairs of the shoes you design with them? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I'm happy to kind of share some of the quantities on, you know, the Vimeros. So we put out around 87,000 units of the Vimero which is a pretty big general release, actually. Um, and it's still managed to kind of, we managed to clear our units within 24 hours. And then the majority of units cleared within about a three to four week period, which is a little slower. But then you have to consider that most, you know, tier zero and energy releases, you only have 20 units, 20,000 units out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, 20,000 units for the Nike fly lever and it cleared in 30 seconds. That's a bit of a, this, again, not trying to sound arrogant, but that's an easy job to clear that amount of inventory. If you're talking about, you know, 90, 100,000 units, it's almost like a different um, spectrum of, of, of objective in place. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I am quite, um, not fixated, but I'm, I, I like the challenge of being able to kind of push more units and understand what it is, you know, uh, these individuals who support what we do actually want from a shoe. And you've probably seen that if you look at the Air Force, which was a lot more um, subtle and well-balanced to the Vimero, which is this spike in eccentricity down to the converse uh, erx and chuck there's like a balance of of the two and i'm always trying to strike this balance of not doing anything too overt because that's already been established we've done that but mm. also trying to push something which is a little bit more experimental and kind of drives a little more uh, a bit more intrigue and, and, and question as well 
I feel like that was like a controversial shoe a little bit too. The the Vumero with, yeah. with the big heel block on it. It was either some people loved it or or some people hated it. Like what what was your response to the reaction on putting that on the shoe? Yeah, with that I wanted to kind of kind of take out the flick knife and kind of stab the dark and be like, we're not going to be doing normal things around here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was a a good uh, a good stake at doing so. But at that time. I was also in the process of segmenting out different consumer brackets for a cold wall uh, and establishing more of like an avant-garde directional take, which of course kind of facilitates the Vomero. If you, if you think of some of the uh, runway pieces produced by a cold wall, you can kind of see how the Vomero and that heel tab interlinks right into some of those more abstract pieces. At the same time, you know, the same year we released the, the Nike AF1 fly lever, which mm-hmm. is a more refined this version. This is like end of, of 2018. Yeah, so roughly, yeah, probably about a year, a year after that, nine months after that. So there's always, you know, going to be this buoyancy of kind of having a pendulum swing between avant-garde on one side, which is way more directional, a bit more challenging, but also having something which is a bit more um, wearable and user-friendly. And I definitely want to keep that dynamic, though there is, um, there's always work still on both sides, for sure. And I think that with the Vomero, the one thing I would have changed about that shoe it's just having more visibility on where the inventory units went when we were allocating for the Romero and for the AF1 low, because that didn't come about until quite late. And in my opinion, we should have inverted the units. I would have preferred to put out 90,000 units of the Air Force low fly lever mm-hmm. and actually 25 units of the Romero. But obviously, Nike was going why? for why, why did you? Why did you? Why do you have that equation in mind? Because I always wanted the Vomero to be far more directional and far more uh, inaccessible to a certain degree. I wanted, that was designed to be a shoe which only a certain amount of people wanted to like. It, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't, I, I wasn't trying to have everyone like that shoe. It was more so to facilitate the direction side of the brand. But I did want the Air Force fly lever, the low, to be for everyone. You can have that. Yeah, I, I want everyone to have that. Everyone feels good in that shoe, right? No one feels conscious about it. Um, but in fact, the units ended up going the other way around, which is why the Vomero became a bit controversial because there were so many units of it on such like a controversial shoe. It's kind of like, well, why did they do that? And that's the one thing I would have changed is just having a bit more visibility on the uh, total units going out on that shoe. I got two questions real quick. One with the, the Air Force One Low that you did. We talked about the Gary Warnett co-sign, but LeBron James really loved that shoe. I saw him wear it multiple, multiple times during the tunnel and even games he wasn't playing. What's it like to, you know, we talk about the shoe selling out, the Converse selling out so quickly, but when you get a co-sign from such an athlete of that stature, what was it like to see him wear the black and white on multiple occasions? Is that something that really, um, not validates, but you got you get excited about and psyched about? Yeah, it's always like, it's just like, it's just super grateful that, um, you know, people want to support the work that we kind of spend a lot of time on. And when you see someone like LeBron James wearing the Air Forces, because he was into the heights for a long time as well and was posting them on his main feed before we went on to the lows. When you see that, it's almost like a, um, it just feels good to know that, you know, your concepts aren't always just in your head and at like an inch level and that they can really connect with everyone. Because for me, that's important, man. As much as I like doing some of this, you know, more esoteric work, at the end of the day, I want the mandem to be able to enjoy the shoes. And it's very important to know that you can still connect with your people with them. 
you know, like LeBron, of course, is of the highest stature, but I have boys back home. Some of my brothers would have the same perspective he has on footwear. So it's always good to know that you've got this through line that's still appreciated. And, and in, mm. you know, for me, LeBron represents like um, the, I mean, almost like the, the athlete and masculine take on what footwear should be. So I'm always, you know, watching and seeing who's wearing the product and noting down this. We don't really let anything slide on this. Side. We try to document all of it. One thing that I like that I've read a lot about you, and I identify this a little bit because I have a lot of pairs of sneakers, but I end up wearing the same three to five a lot. And you said a quote, I think, um, I think it was an ID or something. It's not about buying and switching product over. It's living with them. And I feel like the Vomero took on that kind of, you know, after a week, it looks different than after a day. After 10 days, it looks different than after a week. What is that philosophy? And how do we make kind of the young kids who keep everything so pristine sometimes realize that? I, I, I totally agree with the sediment. And I like that you have been kind of, um, you voice that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure part of this comes from like, childhood trauma of not being able to afford a lot of stuff, right? So when you get that one piece of clothing or that one piece of footwear, you will wear that in and you wear it down and you feel like you own the product. I think owning the product is a really important factor here. And it's something from, you know, people who are close to our generation really appreciated this idea of like wearing a sneaker in, having a relationship and story with the sneaker, it being more than just something that you're kind of boxing and keeping fresh to resell. And I guess part of the joy that comes from like the first time I could ever buy a pair of Jordans or that first time I ever bought a pair of Converse and wearing them through and through everywhere. I want people to feel that because that's what has kind of taken us all to this place of being able to articulate and communicate the quality of footwear to a certain degree. And for me, that emotional connection to the product is actually important. Like I've got a pair of Nike Freeze um, that released maybe two and a half years ago, 3.0s, I believe. They've got a hole in the front, man, but they're great. I'm still, I'm still trading yeah. them every day. Do you know what I mean? Because that shoe's not coming out again, and I want to wear yeah. this shoe. Perfect, it's comfortable. So I'm, I'm an advocate for people wearing their, their footwear and footwear having like a life and a personality. I understand, you know, the necessity um, and the opportunities given by like people reselling. I'm not against it. However, at the same time, the product is there to be enjoyed. Speaking of things that, you know, you probably won't wear, things that would resell for a lot, you ended up getting Damien Hurst to do a one-on-one pair of the Camaros. Like, how, how the hell does that happen? Like, <laughs> It's mad because we, we were joking, like, oh, let's gift Damien Hurst a pair. And then a good friend of mine, Skinny, who does a lot, he calls it, well, he's classed as a flaneur, as he calls himself, but he does a lot of bits and pieces culturally uh, with sportswear, footwear, music. He ended up getting a pair to Damien Hurst and then he just painted them and sent them back to Skinny. And we were just like, this was a, this was a running joke. How did this um, happen? But then the through line kind of makes sense because Damien Hurst's son, Cass, who customizes Air Forces, Cass Hurst, yeah. a big clientele. Him and I ended up connecting in Chicago, actually, for virgil's mca exhibit and retrospect so we ended up building a really strong rapport over there 
connected, sent him some footwear, I believe. And he probably spoke to his father and they ended up working on that pair of shoes or whatnot. And I think there's only maybe like one or two pairs in, in existence. Did you wear a hole into those yet? You know what? I've got a pair that are so mashup, they can't even come on screen right now. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I feel like I need to add in the the story of like the solarized Vomeros because that completely... Oh, I love that shoe. Oh, yes. That completely reignited the whole narrative in place. And I think that was a real learning curve for me on how close I need to be to all kind of processes when developing footwear. Because getting to the solarized colorway was a lot closer to developing the Air Force High. I was there for every single incremental step of it. And of course, those were all hand-dyed in London, one of ones, resin dipped and signed by myself. So we kind of... Beautiful shoe. Thank you. And we really wanted to, again, add that more personable, um, almost like organic feeling to the shoe and almost have like a wabi-sabi nature in place. And sometimes you can't produce that through, you know, like a mainline offering. The same way the Air Force High couldn't be done on like a global release, the same way the Solarize could never be done on, on a global release. Some things need to be really specific and kept quite particular. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, from a design standpoint, I know some of these things are dictated by circumstance, but the Vomero in the way that you want people to wear, it almost seems like a reaction to the Air Force One because you think about how people wear Air Force Ones and they want to keep them so clean and crisp and perfect. And even even that first Air Force One you did was inaccessible to a degree because of how limited it was. But then you have this Vomero that you're telling people, please wear this, please beat this up, please destroy this. Totally. And I've seen some amazing screenshots. I mean, every now and then I go on like a posting spree of posting like 12 worn out Vomeros and they look absolutely stunning, man. I'm telling you, like the, the level of like deterioration and character that people understood, I wasn't, you know, and I'm going to mind myself on, on profanities here, but people understood that I wasn't, you know, chatting Bob about this. They, they know that I wasn't making it up they could see that aging process everything that was said mm-hmm. that shoe released actually happened within a 12-month cycle and for me that's quite um important because i know that i can get quite iterative with my you know with my thoughts and words but for people to see the foundation of what i was saying about an aging process happen through wear and take that step in trust with me as a designer is really fulfilling when they get the product that they want at the end of that as well Go, going on now, now you're moving to the, the Converse projects. You know, you have the the Chuck Taylor, which is like a hiking boot rendition. And you have the ERX, which is completely different from the, the original. How do how do you convince the brands like you did with the Vumero? But like, I want to take some of your most iconic shoes and just totally make it look like it's not even that sneaker. I think that for me, it's this thought of like, if... Nike or Converse or any collaborator wants to actually work with a designer, then the designer should be doing some design work and not mm-hmm. just kind of, and again, it's not, it's, it's not fashion. It's just how I personally feel about design probably because A, studied it, B, worked in the field before, but you're supposed to leave a mark on the product. And I think that when you just spend a lot of time working with their design teams, you actually really care about what their teams think in their, uh, you know, ideation process and just working closely with them you want to leave an imprint on the opportunity to work with some of these super brands and again for me it kind of goes back to sifting through tj maxx or seeing really specific particular product that's always what's engaged me and i want to make product like that because i know that's going to stimulate other people and it is important to have 
product which is directional and abstract out there and a bit more challenging to push the pen forward for everyone? Or are we just going to end up with like logos just placed on shoes that we used to like? It's important to have that experimentation in there for sure. Like I've got one of the original um, ERX samples here and it's got like the black locking as well. And you can see that some of the uh, embossing on, on the logo is nowhere near as sharp. And we went over like series of iterations, even on the, on the back here. I don't know if you can see, yeah, you can see that the etching is a lot smaller here mm-hmm. as well. And obviously there's a series of changes. And this has elasticated laces as well, but we found them too constraining for the shoe, so we took those off. But again, it's always about having different processes. And then there's this other one as well um, in a different colorway, which is super exciting. So there's always a process of um, moving forth and making sure that the shoes have something to say if I'm going to work with a partner who I really respect. Yeah. How limited are they this time around? These aren't... These aren't that limited. We've tried to go for more of like a general release. So we have, I think we took, I think we took around 25,000 units on our .com. In terms of general release, I don't have the specific number across every region because of the way that uh, Converse distributes their wholesale partners. Mm -hmm. When doing all these daring things on the shoes, has there ever been a time where the brand told you, no, you can't do that? Um, no, not, not, not so far. I think typically the design teams are, are quite uh, stimulated by this idea of, wait, this isn't a general release shoe. This isn't solely about, you know, driving revenue. It's probably linked to a marketing budget. So there's probably, I, I would assume they see it as like a way to kind of get some more experiment, experimentation or workout. But then saying that, like Converse and Nike are both really experimental brands when it comes to footwear, to be fair. And um, I mean, their teams like Nate, Joe, Asher, mm-hmm. um, Shamise, Neek, all of these lot are really on like the forefront of footwear design anyway with like ISPA. And um, so there's never a pushback. It's almost like just like working with your family. And I guess, again, the difference there is we all come from like a design discipline versus like a high fashion discipline or from like a more... Um, cultural influencer perspective so there's the same language that's constantly being you know spoken to a certain degree you've talked about how willing they are to push things but i feel like in terms of with outside collaborators they weren't really that way until virgil kind of kicked down the door you know you think about kanye west and his easy line years ago and he was complaining about not being able to do a bunch of shoes and then i feel like virgil who you worked under kind of changed that narrative for young black designers where nike would be willing to give them a bunch of leeway or a bunch of freedom to do a bunch of shoes and and really drastically change them you know completely yeah completely aligned he showed that more experimental take can actually drive revenue which of course opens up a lot more um risk averse conversations for nike and for myself and other you know young designers and designers of color to kind of actually um really have a take of what footwear design can look like in the future and, and again, they've always been um, hyper, hyper supportive, even down from, you know, offering the, the bespoke Air Force One, which really kicked off the story. They've always found, whether it be the local teams or the Portland HQ, they've always found ways that which are quite dynamic to make sure that there is an opportunity to work with them and building like a long-term relationship. And that's why I kind of say it's more like, it feels close to like a family because I've known, you know, some of these people who've been at these companies now for like, talking like eight eight or nine years now and it's mm-hmm. only in the past 
three years products to come forth because you can't just force your way into these conversations. You just have to be diligent and produce, you know, um, work that you care about. And if people respond to it, then the ideal is that opportunities come about. But there's no, there's no like hack or cheat code to kind of get into designing crazy shoes. You just got to put, put the time in. Again, I started as a shop boy at 12, you know, to counterfeit shoes to then a small t-shirt line to then working under Virgil. That's like a... I stuck an 18-year journey, pretty much. Do you consider it at all part of your journey being from Northampton, a place that historically shoemaking was a big part of their industry? Is, is that part of your story at all, or is that separate from, from what you want to do in sneaker design? I think it's part of it. I mean, it's something that was always just kind of discussed and spoken about. Like, the, the town I went to school in, we used to walk past the Doc Martens factory every day. So it's just ingrained in your head. I mean, mm. if you think about, like, British footwear kickers is really popular amongst like school kids especially mm. from jersey background so it'd be kickers or doc martens on your feet ideally and then you'd have like a small nike backpack with like black nike gloves with a small tick the golf gloves mm. and you'd have probably like a nylon holster bag as well so there's always been this like working in of shoes into subculture and i guess that's just kind of something that i've I've kind of carried forth, you know? I think we just need to clarify too for, for the listeners. I know we've said it multiple times. But when we say kick, you mean swoosh. I know I know in the <laughs> in the States, it's like there's no, nah, they'll get it, right? They, there's always there's always no, it's just funny because there's always the conversation of the you know the UK slang terms versus the the US slang terms, sneakers versus trainers and and all that. I've had I've had Mikey HQ be like. It's a, it's a, it's a swoosh. I'm like, mm, it's a tick, man. We, we, we call that a Nike tick, but yeah, you're right. We are. Referring- <laughs> it's, it, it's funny. I go on, I go on a bunch of like Adidas, like uh, Facebook groups in, in the UK and whatnot. And they always like this, the slogan I always hear is like ticks are for dicks. Like people who don't, people who, people who don't like Nike. And it's just, it's just kind of funny to see the, the differences in our sneaker cultures, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, even what you guys referred to was like the, I think it was the Air Max. We called them 110s for a long time just because that's what the RIP price was. So there are always right. these like small little differences here and there. And your uptowns, we do that. You think I heard the word uptown in, in London or Birmingham? <laughs> it's yeah. small, small differences, you know? Wait, what were you calling them? We just called them the, the, the Air Force High or Air Force Mid. That was okay, it. You weren't calling them the Brixtons yeah. or the, the, the Croydons nah, or something? No, nah, we, we, didn't, we didn't get that far. Yeah. One thing too, I wonder how democratizing do do sneakers feel to you? Because I feel like your brand is so much about the separation between classes and things like that. And it's sometimes working in sneakers, it feels like sneakers is one through line or, or it has become more recently something that people across classes enjoy and interact with in the same way. Do you think about sneakers like that? Yeah, totally. It is, it's, I mean, you said it all, but it it's such a concise through line with sneaker culture, being able to kind of I mean, just kind of connect and introduce and be a gateway into high fashion. I see it as a gateway. I also see it as um, a point of attraction that, again, I don't really have anything else to say on that, like that all classes and all ages and different generations, you know, enjoy like boomers, Gen Z uh, and millennials all enjoy sneakers and footwear. Mm. You know, it's just one of those things. Like my my dad, I recently um, gave him a pair of um, ISPAs and he loves them. It's like... There's this thing about footwear which just brings out the, I guess it's almost like a childhood memory mm-hmm. to that first unboxing you ever had. And um, it just can't be, it's irremovable. 
it's almost like you know footwear is so much a representation of the first stages of wealth acquisition and um interestingly enough one's position within like a local community from a societal perspective so it's always um going to be an important through line you know and, mm. and there's something beautiful about that like there's a quote in top boy which is so true and Deshaun, it's in series one Sean, the main protagonist says where i'm from to show you get money, you have money, the first thing you do is put on a fresh pair of kicks, not anything else. And it's so true. Like that idea of being box fresh on like your first day of college or school or whatever, or that feeling when you got that fresh Nike tracksuit on and you got your fresh Air Forces on, there's nothing like it and everyone can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Before we go, Samuel, I want not that for you to settle the debate, but you bring up the ISPA. And I've been around a lot of designers who are like, this shoe is amazing. I saw that you de- kind of debuted a new colorway on your Instagram. You said that you gave it to your dad. What about that shoe do you really love? The fact that it could even be commercialized to me is insane. Um, let alone the fact that the majority of the materials are recycled and within like a closed loop system at Nike is really, really quite profound. And I'm going to be speaking a lot about um, ISPA and Nike NDE and some other Nike programs in the next couple of weeks. We've been working on some stuff around ISPA, which is quite substantial. New Nike collab? Uh, no comment. There's, there's, there's lots of um, conversation. Let well, we'll get through Converse week first, right, Samuel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 not, I'm not committing to that for no headline. Time, but... Um, there's a really tight rapport and we're always, we're always working on something. That's awesome, man. Um, anything else that we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on? It's been great talking to you. I think the main thing to, to touch on is that it's going to be exciting to see that a lot of people are going to get an opportunity to actually get their hands on this Converse release. And of course, it's really exciting to work at a more, um, I mean, this is in context, obviously, but a more democratic price point, whereas typically our mainline footwear is like 250, 300. Air Forces were above 200. The Vimeros were the high, high 100s. Now we have, you know, the Chuck Taylor, which is at 120, 130. Mm-hmm. It was good to kind of stay, take a step towards democratizing the price points. And that's something I want to do a lot more of with these partnerships as well. Actually, there's one more thing I want to bring up. Sam, when is the jewelry coming? I've been waiting for the cold wall jewelry for a minute now. It looked like it was going to happen, and then I feel like it, it never materialized. <laughs> I love the clothes, but I always have trouble fitting them on my awkwardly shaped body. But I feel like <laughs> I could just get a ring or a bracelet or you know something like that. We're not going to be disappointed. We've got the SS21 uh, film debuting in about a week from now, and okay. we've spent a lot of time on jewelry. A lot of time I'm going to be in what, your what, Instagram what, comments what, if I don't see any jewelry. Uh, it's, it's going to be there. Send, send me, DM me your address and we'll make sure we, we have to fling something true to you. Know? So right. we'll make- This guy always, always finds his way to finesse, Look at the finesse. finesse something in at the I'm end. I'm not finessing. No, no, no. Hold on. With 30 seconds yeah, left in no. the fourth quarter, he's going to finesse something. I am. This was not <laughs> a finesse. It was a, a genuine, <laughs> a genuine <laughs> appreciation for this man's resume. Okay. This is, this is how, this is Brendan Dunn's version of getting the follow back. From Virgo, yeah, right. Just to, just, to bring it, just to bring it all, just to bring it all full loop. To be honest, though, I do need, and, and again, even offline, I do need to get you guys sizing so we can get you some awesome. stuff regarding just like apparel, tracksuits. Honestly, so please hold me to that, and we'll make sure the teams uh, connect on that one. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Congratulations on such a big week. Congratulations on all your accolades. We're looking forward to all the projects you have coming up and know it's a busy week for you. So thanks so much for joining us for this uh, hour or so. No, much appreciated for the time, guys. Really appreciate it. Our producer is Dave Matthews. Our associate producer is Jasmine Plata. Sound engineering done by Kyle Garvey. Special thanks to Jennifer Stewart and Shiva Bayet. The Complex Sneakers Podcast is a production of the Complex Podcast Network. Complex Sneakers.